Well, good morning. Scott Andrews is out of town this weekend, and we've uh, been in a or begun a series on the spiritual disciplines. Uh, I'm going to be preaching this morning from Luke chapter four, looking at the temptation of Christ, um, kind of going along with the spiritual disciplines, but not exactly looking at a spiritual discipline this morning. The first church that I served in full time, and the only other church that I've served in full time besides this one. Uh, was in a little town called Versailles, Kentucky. And yes, I pronounced that correctly. We got a Versailles, Kentucky person? Yeah. All right, welcome. All right. Um, they pronounce it Versailles in Kentucky, so I, I pronounced that right. It's just outside of Lexington, Kentucky, and it's famous for two things, thoroughbred horse farms and whiskey. Uh, and you will drink a lot of whiskey if you bet all your money on horses. Um, so the two do go together just a little bit. It's a beautiful area of the country, and um, Carol and I spent our first several years uh, of full-time ministry there. New Hope Baptist Church and Versailles, Kentucky, hold a very special place in our heart as a result. We remain connected to friends that we made there years ago. So when a federal prisoner who had mafia connections escaped during a prisoner transport in April of 2010, Carol and I watched the manhunt in Versailles, Kentucky, carefully. We were concerned for our friends. U.S. Marshals spent almost three whole days looking for a murderer who had dismembered his female victim. The town of less than 10,000 was on virtual lockdown. The local Dairy Queen security camera revealed that he was hanging out around there at one point. Uh, a man and his wife went to get in their pickup truck, and as they were about to get it, they noticed that there was a man laying down in the bed of their truck, and they, they ran away. He was spotted in a neighborhood of one of our good friends. Each time he was spotted or caught on camera or whatever, uh, he managed to slip away. As you can imagine, everyone in Versailles, Kentucky, who had a gun, had it loaded. <laughs> Doors were locked. Children were kept inside. Security was everywhere. Why? Because no one wanted to be his next victim. And everyone in that town was prepared to flee or fight whichever the situation called for if they had to. He was eventually caught in some woods out near some train tracks waiting for a train to come by. He was going to jump on it and try and get away. Now, what if that scenario was playing itself out here in Boone? What if a murderer was roaming our town? Wouldn't you lock the doors? Wouldn't you keep the kids inside? I know a lot of you would be packing heat. We're mountaineers after all, right? That's what we do. <coughs> Some of you might be packing heat this morning. I don't know. And if you found this murderer trying to get inside your house, you'd probably pull the trigger. In a spiritual sense, there is a murderer roaming around our world. Jesus called Satan a murdering liar in John 8, 44. In Ephesians 6, the apostle Paul exhorts us to put on the whole armor of God. He calls us to this because we are in a fight against cosmic powers and evil spiritual forces. We are told to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 exhorts us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil and his demons 
would delight in raping and consuming your soul. The devil is real and he is influencing this world. I picked up a news magazine just this week and as I flipped through article after article, I just kept thinking, this is an evil world. There's a lot of horrible things happening in our world today. Adam and Eve were the devil's first victims. He tempted them in the garden and they fell into sin. In sinning, Romans 5 says, they plunged all of humanity into a sinful nature. So James 1.15 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. So we are in a war against spiritual forces and we are in a war against corrupted, fallen natures. There is a murderer wandering around in our neighborhood, but we keep the doors of our house unlocked because we'd kind of like to meet him. There's a part of us that identifies with him and we'd like to check him out. We live in a fallen world and and we have all contributed to this fallen world. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you feel the reality of this in our world? Do you see the reality of this in our world? It's all over the place. Do you see it within yourself? At least, at, at the very least, scars from disjointed desires in days gone by. Can you see it? Temptation is something we all face. Some of us might wrestle with the big ones, lust, gluttony, greed, laziness, anger, envy, or pride. But there are other sins that Jerry Bridges calls uh, sarcastically respectable sins. You know, things like gossip and anxiety, dishonesty or white lies, you know, you know the harmless lying, discontentment and whining, impatience, self-absorption, unthankfulness, cynicism and bitterness, Temptation's all around us. Enter Jesus, our Savior. Consider Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus sees the fallen world and our self-deceived hearts, and he enters into that in order to redeem us and sanctify us. Now, some hear Hebrews 4.15 and they, and they say, well, Jesus, he wasn't tempted in every single way. He was never tempted to look at porn on the internet because there, there wasn't an internet. Or he wasn't ever tempted to waste his time playing Candy Crush for five hours a day because that wasn't around. Jesus was never tempted to drive past the speed limit because donkeys aren't exactly Kentucky Derby winners, right? And furthermore, Jesus was God. So he wasn't really tempted, was he? I disagree with those objections, and I believe the Bible does not allow us to think that way, and I'm going to try and show you that this morning. Today, I want us to look at the temptation that Jesus faced. And as we do that, I want us to be comforted. I want us to be equipped with gospel truth, and I want us to be encouraged. I want us to feel the comfort that comes when we realize that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. I want us to feel equipped with gospel truth that Jesus has done what we cannot do so that we can be with him. And I want us to feel encouraged in the war that we find ourselves in, the war against the tempter and the war against our own sinful desires. 
So three main points will guide us this morning. Point number one, the Bible teaches that Jesus faced temptation. Point number two, the Bible teaches that Jesus never sinned. And then third, finally, temptation is not sin and temptation does not have to lead a believer to sin. So here we go. Point number one, the Bible teaches us that Jesus faced temptation. Key passages where we see this are Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Mark 1, 12 to 13, Luke 4, 1 to 13, Hebrews 2, 18, and Hebrews 4, 15. There are others. Think about when uh, Peter confronts Jesus about his plans and Peter, or Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. All right, there's, there's temptation that Jesus faces throughout his ministry, but those are key passages. The Bible seems to make a pretty consistent case that Jesus faced temptation. If we say he wasn't tempted, we're denying the truth that are in these passages. And we've got some things we've, we've got to deal with. So consider Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I'll give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. And here in Luke 4, we find Jesus practicing spiritual disciplines. He's in solitude and he's fasting. As the devil is tempting him, it becomes clear that Jesus has in the past and is continuing to meditate on and memorize scripture. It seems safe to assume that Jesus is praying as well. So as we're in the midst of this sermon series on spiritual disciplines, let's be reminded that Jesus practiced these very same things that we are commanded to do. It is the road to spiritual vitality. It's the road to holy joy. Notice also that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us twice that Jesus was facing repeated temptations during those 40 days. You see that in verse 2 and verse 13. Luke tells us about three particular ones, but Luke makes it clear that there were other temptations as well. We don't know exactly how Satan appeared before Jesus because Luke doesn't tell us that. Did Satan manifest himself as a snake as he did in Eden? Did he appear as an angel of light as 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that he can? Did he appear as some sort of horrific looking monster? Was he invisible, just kind of tossing ideas in front of Christ's path? We don't know. It just says that he was there. But know this. If Satan has the audacity to go toe to toe with Jesus Christ, he and his demons are not afraid of you. And they'll be happy to mess with you or lob some temptations in your general direction. Three specific temptations are mentioned in Luke 4. And I believe these three temptations really show us the root of a lot of temptations that we might face today. So let's look at them. The first temptation is to turn stones into bread. 
This was a real temptation because Jesus had not eaten for 40 days and he was hungry, according to verse 2. As, as God in the flesh, Jesus felt hunger and thirst and pain and exhaustion, just like we do. As God in the flesh, he had the capacity, <coughs> excuse me, he had the capacity to turn stones into bread. If he could calm a storm, if he could heal a blind man, if he could feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, he could do this. But in his intense hunger, he refuses Satan's temptation. He says to him, physical needs are real, but they are not ultimate. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3. Jesus says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is ultimately happening here is this. Satan is tempting Jesus to meet his own needs and not trust in the Father. Jesus is being tempted to use the power he has for his own purposes rather than for God's glory. Have you ever felt this kind of temptation? Have you ever felt tempted to stop waiting on God's timing and just take care of things yourself? Have you ever felt tempted to stop trusting God? Have you ever felt tempted in such a way that you felt like your physical desires were overpowering you? Hebrews 2.18 says that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. He knows the pain that can be involved in saying no to physical desires. Hebrews 4.15 says he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he has felt them. Feel comforted by that this morning. And notice that Jesus did not yield to this temptation. Jesus wanted to fulfill the mission of God more than he wanted to eat. So Satan tries another angle. Somehow he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So it's probably some kind of momentary vision thing that, that Satan creates. And Satan shows him all the glory of the nations, but not their sin. After showing Jesus this, he looks at him and he says, worship me and I'll let you have the world. Now Satan does this kind of thing, doesn't he? He'll show us the attractive part of something, but not the rotten part of it. So he says, worship me and I'll let, you, I'll let you have the world. Now this temptation is a little bit harder to get our brains around. First of all, is Satan really in charge of all the kingdoms? Well, there are some verses that say that Satan uh, has some serious influence over the world. Ephesians 2, 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6 speaks of rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil that are exerting influence over the world. So obviously God's Sovereignty is ultimate, but he has, to some degree, allowed Satan some influence and control over the days that we live in. But is this really a temptation for Jesus? Worship Satan? Here's what I think is happening. Satan was the first sinner. He rebelled against God as an angel and sought his own glory. A host of angels followed him uh, into that temptation, and 2 Peter 2.4 says that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. And let me just say that he was still holy when he did that to these sinful angels, and he would remain holy if he did that to all of us. 
But from that point of rebellion, evil has sought, albeit unsuccessfully, to overcome the goodness of God. Satan is saying this, look, I'll end the war if you'll bow the knee for just a moment. Let's make this easy. Don't live and die for these people. Just bow down to me and you can be in charge. I, I think that's the temptation. Jesus, worship me, avoid suffering for humanity, have the glory of the nations, don't take on the sin. Does that sound at all familiar? Are you ever tempted to take the shortcut and do what might be easier rather than what is right or needed? I am. Now, it's a little bit harder to get our, our mind around this temptation. I can get my mind around Jesus being hungry and wanting to eat, but would Jesus have been tempted to worship the devil and avoid suffering? Consider this. Just before the cross, Luke 22, 39 to 46 says, Jesus is praying to God the Father in the garden, and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The Bible says he was in great agony, and he prayed with great intensity. When we speak of Jesus suffering on the cross, we must realize that he was fully God and fully man on the cross. As God and man, he's innocent, he's the spotless lamb who's being sacrificed for us, and he's bleeding, and he's hurting, and he's in a pain that we cannot imagine. Nails in his hands and feet, his back ripped to shreds and pressed up against a big old piece of wood. Jesus knew that suffering would be a horrible experience. And if anyone could fully grasp the misery that was before him, would it not be Jesus who had left the glories and riches of heaven? So this temptation to deviate from the plan of God and take a shortcut was real. Are we not tempted to take shortcuts? How many of our sins can fall into that category? But Jesus resists the easy way, and he chooses to do what is desired by the Father and needed by us. Again, Jesus quotes an Old Testament verse and says, Worship is for God alone. I will not for even an instant give worship, honor, and service to anyone but my Father. Is that our heart? Are we committed to worshiping God in every single moment? Or are we willing to bow to something other than him on occasion for just a moment or two because it would be easier? So Satan tries a third angle. The first two haven't worked. In a way that kind of blows our mind, Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple in Jerusalem, probably about 450 feet up. Maybe this is some kind of vision thing again, or maybe they have transported themselves to this new location, kind of like how Philip was carried away in Acts 8. I figure if Satan is the prince of the air and Jesus can walk on water, this is possible. And so they're at the top of the temple and Jesus says, jump, Jesus. And then he goes on to quote, or actually misquote and misapply Psalm 91, which is all about God's protection. Satan is now tempting Jesus to prove who he is by, by forcing God the Father to protect him. He says, let's play his hand. Test God. If you're the son of God, notice he said that every single time, he's continually challenging Christ's identity. If you're the son of God, then jump. God the Father will keep you safe. Basically, Satan is saying, prove it right now. Prove who you are. Has anyone ever looked at you and asked for that? Just prove it. Are you ever tempted to test God? I'm going to do this and just see what he'll do. Here, Satan says, if you're the son of God, jump. And he wants Jesus to prove who he is by putting God the Father to the test. Force his hand. 
Have the angels catch him. Satan is saying, I, I know the Father has a plan for you, but let's skip over some of that and let's make a big show of who you are. Forget humbly walking around and teaching and helping people. Don't do this God the Father's way. Do it my way or, or better yet, let's make it your way. Let's do it, let's do it your way. Let's, let's, let's see what God the Father will do if you do this. Prove who you are. Show your independence. But again, Jesus resists this temptation. He correctly uses scripture and says, you shall not put God to the test. Jesus says, I'm not here trying to manipulate God the Father into doing what what I want him to do. I'm not gonna put him to the test. I'm gonna trust him. I'm here to serve and submit to my Father. I'm living according to his will and his will alone. And this takes us to our second point. The Bible teaches that Jesus never sinned. We just saw that in these three examples. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus never sinned. Hebrews 7.26 says that Jesus is holy, innocent, and unstained. 1 John 3.5 says that you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Consider 1 Peter 2. 22 to 23, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus never sinned, not even with his mouth. As he's heading to the cross and he's being mistreated and abused and tortured, he does not sin with his mouth. As he's on the cross dying for our sins, he still does not sin with his mouth. Is there anybody in here that can say you've never sinned with your mouth? No, but Jesus never sinned. When reviled, he did not revile in return. There was no deceit found in his mouth. The Bible is clear. Jesus was tempted just like us, but he never sinned. We have to affirm both of those statements because both of those statements are clearly repeated in scripture over and over. Jesus faced true temptation and he always resisted temptation, which is what makes him the perfect perfect sacrifice for us, for our sins. He did what we cannot do. But there's a question here. Did Jesus have an advantage if he's God and, and God cannot be tempted by evil, that's what James 1.13 says, was he really tempted? The Bible says, yes, we just saw that. But, okay, different question. Could Jesus have sinned? Was it really possible? Certainly if he had sinned, the world would be doomed because God would be sinful as well. That's easy to figure out. But was sinning actually possible? Theologians have debated this question forever, and they use a really big word in the debate called the impeccability of Christ. I don't want to get bogged down in this, but I do want to address it because I think it will help us grasp the, the comfort and the power of, of the third point we're going to get to in just a second. Since we've been talking about the deep end uh, and swimming in this series on spiritual disciplines, let me use a, a guy named Bruce Ware's swimming illustration to help us get our minds around this, this complicated uh, question. I want you to imagine a swimmer who wants to set a new world record with the longest swim. He trains and eats like Michael Phelps and eventually gets to the point uh, that he can swim 50 to 60 miles in one session. But he notices that every time he gets to that 60 mile mark, his muscles start to cramp. 
And he continues to train because he, he knows that he's going to have to swim more than 70 miles to break the world record. But he decides that when he sets out to break the world record, he's going to have some friends follow behind in a boat just in case he begins to cramp so badly that he cannot go on and he begins to drown. The big day comes and he swims to a new world record, even with the cramping. His friends follow behind him, but they never help him. Two questions for you. Why could the swimmer not have drowned? The answer is because there was a boat to save him that ensured he would not drown. But why is it that the swimmer did not drown? We can't say it was because of the boat, because the boat never helped him. He didn't drown because he kept on swimming, even through the pain. He kept going and going. Similarly, though every illustration has its weakness when it comes to God, <laughs> Jesus could not have sinned because he was God, but Jesus did not sin because he obeyed completely and constantly as a spirit-filled, Bible-meditating, praying man who trusted in the Father day after day, moment after by moment. In order for Jesus to be our substitute and savior, he had to live and experience all of life like we do. He had to be tempted and he had to triumph over temptation as a man so that he could be our savior. There were times where Jesus called upon his divine nature to, to calm a storm or alter someone's blind eyes or their lame legs. But there were times where Jesus dealt with and experienced all of life just like we do in the weakness of the flesh. So he felt tired, he felt hungry, he had to walk when he wanted to get somewhere, he felt temptation. There's a mystery to the incarnation of Christ that's beyond our comprehension, but let us not say that Jesus wasn't really tempted because the scripture goes to great efforts to say that he was. Let us not say that Jesus ever sinned because the scripture says that he was perfect, even with his mouth. But this is what makes Hebrews 4.15 so wonderful and powerful and comforting. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Takes us to our third point. Temptation is not sin, and temptation does not have to lead a believer to sin. I think too many Christians feel sinful as soon as they feel tempted. So they just give up without a fight. Well, I've already messed up. They just dive into it. And I think that too many Christians feel like Jesus is too pure uh, to help them in their temptation. So they have to fight it alone. So they, they feel temptation and say, oh, I'm tempted. Jesus would not be happy with that. Okay, I got to deal with this and then I'll go to Jesus. You take that approach, you're going to lose every time. Luke says Jesus fought temptation full of the Holy Spirit and with the word of God. He knows what it is like to face temptation and he's not disgusted by you for feeling temptation. And he wants you to draw near to him in those moments. Look at Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In temptation, we can with confidence draw near to Jesus. He will help us. 
If you draw near to Jesus in the midst of temptation, victory is attainable because you're now with the one who's overcome every temptation he ever faced. A couple of verses elsewhere open this up for us even more. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13 says this, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So if you've been listening to this whole sermon thinking, well, I don't have to worry about this because I'm never tempted. Take heed lest you fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a way out. And consider John 10, 7 through 10. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Bible says that there is a way of escape when temptation is near. The Bible says that Jesus knows what temptation is like because he's resisted it fully. And Jesus calls himself the door of life. Do you see it? Run to Jesus. Run to him when you feel those peculiar temptations that come with loneliness and despair. Run to him when you feel tempted at the breakfast table or in front of the mirror or in the classroom or in the office or on the business trip or on the computer or in the worship gathering. Run to him when all you want is the loot. You just want the money. Run to him. Run to Jesus when you're tempted to stop trusting in God. Run to him when you're tempted to take a shortcut. Run to him when you're tempted to prove who you are instead of resting in who God is. This is one of the reasons we train ourselves for godliness by means of the spiritual disciplines. So that when we find ourselves in combat with evil forces or with the remnants of our own sinful nature, we can experience victory. We're supposed to experience victory. Victory. Too many Christians have given up far too easily when temptation appeared. Too many Christians have tried to fight it in their very own strength instead of drawing near to the one who can help them. I've been one of them. The friendship doesn't have to be severed because that person hurt you. You can overcome the bitterness by running to Jesus. The marriage doesn't have to be over. You can say no to that temptation at work. I don't care how addicted you've been. Jesus is more powerful. Your past doesn't have to dictate today. Lord willing, spring is coming. It doesn't look good for the next couple of days. I'm opposed to them showing frozen this week. <laughs> but Lord willing, spring is coming. And spring makes me think of baseball and fishing. Think about fishing for a moment. Think about fishing in a boat, all right? There are so many different kinds of bait. Hard bait, soft bait, spinners, buzz baits, jigs, panfish lures, spoons, live bait like worms or crickets. Certain baits are attractive to certain kinds of fish. But they all have one thing in common. All of them have a hook. Satan's tackle box is large. Run to Jesus when you feel like biting. I don't know which lure it is for you, but run to Jesus when you feel like biting. There is a murderer roaming this place. Don't invite him in because you're curious and a little bit intrigued. Dancing with him for a moment will not go well. Lock the doors, 
to your heart. Load the gun with the word of God and fight the good fight of faith in the strength that comes when we draw near to Christ, our Savior. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to be and to do what we could not be and could not do in our own strength. Thank you that you have taken his perfect life and applied it to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking our sin upon yourself. And we pray that as we face temptation this week, you would remind us that we can draw near to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.